0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the topic increasingly on everyone's minds inflation. While the Bank of England's chief economist predicts a great post coronavirus surge in economic recovery, we weigh up the risks that inflation could pose for savers and investors. With Miles Sherry, investment consultant, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments.
1: Welcome to another episode of Word on the Street and the last for the first quarter of the year. It's pretty scary, really, how fast time seems to be flying by. But the good news is those longer summer evenings, I expect everyone is craving are very near with the clocks, of course, going forward this weekend. So no excuses to anyone listening for logging on an hour late for work on Monday, I'm afraid. But anyway, I'm back in the virtual interviewer's armchair, which means holding Will Hobbs, our chief investment officer's feet to the fire for the next 10 to 15 minutes or so. And the topic of the moment with investors and many clients I speak to is without doubt inflation. So it's a subject that is pretty poorly understood, actually, By the majority of us and even those who claim to have a hold on it seem to be very bad at actually getting their forecasts right but it is a huge deal when it comes to the saving and investing story so a really important subject to try and get a bit of a better handle on and remember inflation of course describes the evolution of the price of a representative basket of goods over time and it's mostly a pretty invisible enemy When it comes to our savings, but the cash you have sitting in, say, a bank or a savings account will basically be be getting less and less powerful in terms of what it can actually buy you over time. And I think compounding is the point to really remember here and something which is all too often overlooked. Because after all, if the price of the stuff you're wanting to buy is, say, moving away at 2% a year, then you may be sitting there thinking, so what? But if you compound that hypothetical 2% number over multiple years, it starts to become really quite meaningful. Will, what was the compounding example Rob Smith used the other day? It was quite a nice analogy, I think, something to do with folding paper. Yes, that's right, Ellen
2: Miles. It was, you borrowed this from a TED Talk, I think, or probably, you know, I've heard a few people use it. It's more about exponential growth, which is essentially the effect of compound growth over time. And the head twister was that you could fold a piece of paper 45 times and the width would reach the moon. Hold it one more time and you can get it back to Earth again. But for compounding, you know, think about an inflation rate of 10% year on year. Sounds extreme, but Turkish CPI, the current sort of annual rate of inflation, consumer price inflation in Turkey uh, is currently running, you know, consistently well above that, for example. Anyway, if that at that rate it takes about seven years to double. Uh, prices from their starting point after 14 years you've quadrupled seven years later it's eight times 16 times in another uh uh, seven years in 28 years with a 10 percent compound growth rate you've grown well well north of a thousand percent so yeah you're you're right you're right it really is it's a it's a powerful enemy over time and it's really difficult intuitively to understand for, for for us humans i think probably
1: yeah incredible um how it how it all adds up but anyway look It's been quite a while, actually, since you've been on here. So before we get into that pretty meaty subject, do you want to maybe start by just giving us a bit of a rundown of what's actually been going on the past month or so across the world's capital markets? Yeah, you've all had a holiday from me.
2: But I mean, yes, I'm very (laughs) glad to be back. But it's been interesting in markets, the index level, you know, stocks and other assets that you know, are seen as more sensitive to the outlook for you know global economic growth. They pulled back a little bit after a decent start to the year over that last month. Meanwhile, the interest rate available made available to kind of what we call high quality borrowers, so you know large, big, liquid governments and um, and companies. That that interest rate has risen a bit. Now, some are making a link between the two. You know, they maybe worry a little bit about you know what is driving interest rates higher. Uh, and whether we are in the process of cooking up a you know a big inflationary bust, that's one of the big stories at the moment. So obviously, the, the driving force behind this kind of these fears is the arrival of another very hefty batch of US government spending in the US, uh, as well as speculation for what lies in its wake, namely, you know, a multi trillion dollar spending package. That's what people are sort of increasingly expecting that will to some extent also add to um, to the historically large, you know, government debt pile.
1: Yeah, and I guess that policy piece is a big part, really, of why everyone is actually getting worried about inflation again. Because the common perception I hear, at least, seems to centre around central banks essentially printing piles of money while governments, in turn, you know, pile on the debt. And to some, it all feels like this is going to end in a pretty messy inflationary accident. But until then, all of this splashing the cash, for want of a better word. From the authorities is really all that is keeping equity markets and some ev- some other areas of the world's capital markets afloat so i guess basically in a nutshell there the outlook if you take that analogy sounds pretty precarious really it's very familiar that
2: one uh, there is one nuance in there and, and i think you know just to just to sort of you know uh, that's very much a narrative i hear a lot and i think it's an, there is a nuance in there i think which is important to establish and that is that in the popular imagination or in lots of you know people's minds Quantitative easing QE continues to be confused with money printing, which has given rise to all sorts of kind of, in a way, deliberately troubling metaphors and historical comparisons. Remember, and I, I'm going to be guilty myself for a little bit of oversimplification here, but ultimately we in the modern economy, we are the dominant money printers, us consumers. So, you know, think about it this way. So when, I, when I go to the bank and ask uh, to borrow some money uh, and that bank unwisely grants my uh, my wish money is created at that point money is printed in a sense in in some sense now in that transaction I have to have the confidence to demand that money Um, so I have to feel confident enough about my future prospects of employment and so on and as importantly the bank that I'm going to has to have the confidence in me as a uh, as a credit risk and the wider economic backdrop to actually lend it to me now for much of the last decade plus That confidence and willingness has been a bit lacklustre on both sides of that transaction. And actually, you know, around much of the world at the moment, there's not so far been evidence of a kind of major seismic shift in that story just yet. So that that is something we're watching. But I think it's an important nuance just to point out.
1: Mm, Certainly an important correction. But let's let's be real here. We do still have a situation, right, where central banks are being, let's say, very, very generous. Well, governments, particularly in the US, actually continue to spend big with more potentially actually in the pipeline. And we all know you love your history and some will point to the late 1960s and 1970s and actually several other comparable episodes as evidence of this combination can really be very dangerous.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, there is a very sort of, you're, you're totally right. And there's, you know, there's a lot of that kind of historical research going doing arounds at the moment. Uh, personally, I think there's a couple of points. So one, and this is an obvious point to make, but history is messy and complicated. And so much so that there is no one consistent narrative that can unarguably, unequivocally explain something like every episode of inflation, you know, to that end, you tend to find schools of economists who subscribe to a particular group of theories, maybe, through which they will try and explain as much as possible. Uh, it's just kind of shorthand. And that's you've got to go down that route to a certain extent. You've got to find a philosophy to try and uh, explain as much as as you think you can. Now, there's certainly one school that sees past episodes of problematic inflation, as you describe, driven by both monetary policy makers and governments being generous together for sustained periods of time. However, I would point out that there are other important inputs viewed from another sort of viewed through other prisms of economic thought uh, into these uh, into these past episodes. And to be honest, if there was just one strand of thinking that could explain all past inflation, wouldn't we collectively be much better at forecasting it than we clearly are? The second point is, Mm -hmm. even if we like that argument, I would say it was the. You know, in those instances, it was the accumulation, the compounding, if you will, of repeated policy errors over time that led to the big problems. You know, remember also that central banks around the world back in the sixties and seventies were either not independent from the government, as in the case in the UK, or relatively thinly so, uh, as was demonstrated in the US. So there was this famous incident of President Lyndon Johnson. Uh, hauling the then Fed chair down to his ranch uh, to shout at him about uh, you know raising interest rates uh, late in 1965, uh, you know while his boys were dying in the mud in Vietnam, and that that's seen as illustrative of uh, a moment when you know the Federal Reserve's inflation-fighting resolve was kind of critically weakened. So you know it's not to say that this stuff couldn't happen again, but we want to be wary of assuming that it will.
1: Got you. So to be clear here, and bringing things maybe back to the current stock market. My takeaway is that you would not characterize this particular market as essentially being precariously balanced on central bank generosity. And maybe you and the wider team still actually think that stocks can rise further from here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, no, I mean, personally, I don't, and I know the team doesn't think that the stock market is particularly precariously balanced at the moment. You know, that, that, that central bank liquidity fueled rally story has always looked weird to me, to be honest. It was, it was wrong in the last economic cycle, painfully so for those who bought into it. And I'm not sure it's any less wider than Mark, uh, you know, now in many ways. There will always be doomers. That's just the nature of things. And every now and again, they will be right. History suggests that uh, you know, the capital markets accidents that come along are the occasional price we pay to be able to access, you know, future human productivity. And we know less about either the accidents or the, you know, the potential for future human productivity than than we than we think we do. But historically, it's, you know, that's sort of why historically, it's, it's always been worth just being invested at all times and sticking with it. Now, now, on the future of human productivity point, and you know, I bang on about this a lot, but you know, and and that remember future human productivity that translates into future profits growth, earnings, dividends, and you know share price growth. as a kind of direct link. You know, it's hard to get too bleak in a year when we've just hit upon a vaccine, basically in a weekend. You know, versus you know shattering previous records of kind of vaccine location. You know, I don't know when or where the next technological breakthrough will, t- will take place, or which parts of the economy will benefit to the greatest degree. How on earth can I? Otherwise, why would I be sitting here? I'd be busy inventing it. But therefore, I invest in diversified fashion across the world and try as hard as I can to stay patient and calm with the help of, uh, you know, Rob Smith's careful advice.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, presumably thinking about inflation, there's there's no major concerns there at the moment.
2: Not right now. No. But, you know, remember that, you know, the hole punched in the global economy is pretty big. And actually, is still to be really determined in in terms of its size. Um, if you think about the UK, for example, you know when you you know, we traditionally try and think about measuring the degree of economic slack. You know, in this case, the you know the damage done by the uh, by the by the pandemic, that sort of unused engine space, if you will, by looking at unemployment, how many people are on the economic sidelines, sort of waiting to get back into action. Well, at the moment. It's difficult to see what the true level of unemployment is because of the furlough scheme. More broadly, though, we don't actually know what the true level of jobs the economy will offer once everything is normalised after this crisis either. So think about it. How can we know that if we don't know what of the dramatic changes to our working, playing, saving and investing lives of the last year will actually endure? Now for some the point we've been making is that you know children pets and broadband and I think you can hear my wife's dogs in the background today in open joyous mutiny may have permanently replaced the quiet hum of the um, the office tower now that alone will have huge implications for what you know what inflation looks like going forward so from our perspective We still see, you know, supportive monetary and fiscal policy around the world as a very welcome and likely necessary thing for now. You could argue that if kind of this deficit spending, you know, deficits became normalised and by, say, an increasing adherence to, you know, MMT, you know, a modern monetary theory, or, you know, central banks lose, increasingly lose independence, as you are clearly seeing in Turkey at the moment, then the worries might start to, you know, get a little bit more realistic, but but we're not there yet. So it's just something to watch out for, I think.
1: Okay, look, that all makes sense to me. But let's take a step back and let me play uh, devil's advocate, maybe here. And let's say you are actually wrong. And there is more problematic inflation uh, upcoming on the horizon. Now, it's not like central banks or anyone for that matter, really, has proved to be very accurate forecasters here. But I guess the question is, are we prepared for it in investment terms? And a particularly tricky question, I know, But how would our portfolios perform in such a scenario?
2: Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very valid point, Miles, You're entirely right. And I think, you know, the first thing to say here is that, you know, all inflation forecasts, like you say, should be very low conviction, particularly right now. So a good illustration of this, you know, the Bank of England expressed this you know, very low conviction statistically. So at the moment, the confidence intervals for that two year out inflation forecast are twice as large as normal. So, you know, the illustration of that is that they see a one in three chance that inflation will be either below zero or above 4% in 2023. So you are right to keep an uh, uh, an open mind entirely right. Now from an investment perspective I think the most important message is that there is no one silver bullet that works in all inflation regimes uh in investing terms like i say you know as with all things in investments a lot depends on the difference between what is expected in terms of inflation and therefore already embedded into the, you know, complex package of incentives to ownership that come with, you know, all assets and the actual outcome, the difference between the two. Now, for our part, uh, you know, that at the beginning of the year, we added patient link bonds and, and more diversified commodities to our multi-asset class funds and portfolios. You know, that, that should help or could help in certain inflation scenarios. But I think the, the broader point really is about. You know, it's about broad diversification. As we always point out, investing is not about one macho vision uh, of the future and putting it, you know, all in on inflation or deflation, kind of red or black in the casino kind of thing. It's about diversifying uh, across a range of potential paths ahead. And that, that is why, you know, the, efforts we save from squinting at the crystal ball, we deploy into, you know, getting the team to mathematically imagine hundreds of thousands of viable futures ahead uh, and finding the mix of assets, you know, some with inflation, some with not. Uh, and, and their job is to find the mix of assets that sits most robustly in amongst all of them.
1: Yeah, just uh, just thinking about things, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. And just this morning, we heard from the chief economist for the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, comments to the media about the potential for a rip-roaring recovery ahead for the UK economy. Now, I suspect he's really talking about these pent-up savings from the crisis, essentially just being unleashed on the economy, which I know you and the team have been talking about for several months now. But what is your overriding view on those particular remarks?
2: Yeah, this is a key story for the year. You know, savings have built up rapidly around the world you know during the pandemic so some some of that is kind of what's called precautionary so people worried about the future some is just sort of restricted spending opportunities so we can't go to restaurants and all those kind of things and so you know money is money is saved in certain parts of society and many see this kind of pent up tidal wave of spending splashing down on the UK and global economy uh, in the second half of this year as restrictions hopefully ease further and you know confidence hopefully recovers all things, uh, you know, if things continue on the current path. Now, a couple of notes of caution from, from me, and I think we've made these before, but they're, they're worth reiterating. But first, these pent up savings are not evenly distributed across all parts of developed world society in the UK as elsewhere they are likely skewed towards higher earners. Now, one competitor, for instance, has argued, not unreasonably, I think, that um, has suggested that pretty much all of the excess savings that have accrued have accrued to the top 40% in terms of income categories. Now, the point there is that you know the higher parts of the income segment, the, the higher earners, they tend to have what's called a higher marginal propensity to save. And that that just means that you know, they save more of their income as a result. And so what that would mean is that, you know, you would expect less of that savings to crash down on the economy than maybe some are expecting. The second point is that past pandemics have left a scar on our collective risk appetite. So we've talked about this before, you know, savings rates have remained elevated for a while. You know, that, that's kind of understandable. We feel the need to save more for that, you know, that now very visible, rainy day. Now, you know, I, for one, think that this time might indeed be a bit different, but still, it's worth bearing in mind. But, uh, you know, overall, here's hoping, I think that, uh, you know, Andy Haldane, you know, the chief economist is right. He's, a, he's a, In my opinion, I, I read a lot of his stuff. I really enjoy his uh, uh, his speeches and, and so on. I think he's, you know, he's, he's very accessible. So he's well worth looking out on the Bank of England website uh, for anyone who is interested. You know, and and I think the other thing to say is that, you know, certainly the US and the world economy is set to accelerate, I mean, materially in the second half of the year. You know, even on sort of, you know, more conservative forecasts about how that savings ratio evolves. And that will likely, you know, particularly the US acceleration and that stimulus that's going into the US economy,
1: that will have
2: spillovers for the rest of the world,
1: the UK included. Good to know. And look, as I said at the start, it's the end of the first quarter, which also means we are very near the end of this tax year. So just a quick reminder to those of you who have not used your ISA allowance, make sure you do so if you are, of course, lucky enough to have any spare cash to to contribute. But we've hit time there. Thanks a lot, Will. Some very useful food for thought for our listeners to mull over this weekend. And remember, if you are interested in exploring investments more generally, please do take a look at barclays.co.uk forward slash investments.
0: All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.